This morning's Old Testament reading comes from the book of Amos. Thus says the Lord, for three generations of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. I hate... I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The word of the Lord. Well, because of our emphasis this particular Sunday on adoption and orphan care and vulnerable children in our area, we always pause from our normal series and really try to focus on a passage in scripture that helps us understand that this concern um, is aligned with with God's concern. And for those of us who belong to him, that this is something that we also should and do care about. And so as we're pausing from our our series on the Ten Commandments, I was also thinking this week that this, this sermon is kind of a part two to last week. So last week we looked at do not murder, and we really started to think about the ways in which the positive side of that command is calling us to support life and to love life and um, to really care for those who can't maybe care for themselves. And so this morning, um, this is maybe a part two to how we might do that. We're, We're using the words of a prophet named Amos. You may not know a whole lot about Amos. You may have never heard a sermon from Amos before. Amos was, Amos was what, growing up where I grew up, he was what we called a hick. He was a country boy. He lived in a small town um, named Tekoa. He was, a, he was a farmer. He was a very reluctant prophet, as most prophets were, but especially um, Amos. Amos wasn't, he didn't go to prophecy school. He wasn't trained in the ways of prophecy, but God called Amos for this specific task, to go to Israel in a time of immense prosperity for them and to pronounce his judgment upon them for very specific and particular reasons. And so this morning, I want to look at what some of those are, and I want to ask the question of how this might be relevant to us this morning. So before we do that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of your word. We thank you that you've given it to us this morning uh, so that we might see the truth more clearly, uh, that you might even reprove us and correct us and discipline us and train us. Most of all, Father, that you might point us to the redemption that is found in your son, Jesus. So, Father, even as you might convict us, 
I pray that you would help us to see this morning that Jesus even died for our lack of love, and maybe especially so. So that even as we marvel more intensely at how loving he is to unloving people, that we might actually be made more loving, that we might be made more like him. Father, would you do that for us this morning by your spirit, so that we as your church might be a conduit, a vessel of your grace and your mercy in the place in where you have put us. We ask this so that you would receive more glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the name uh, Ruby Bridges, or maybe not. Ruby Bridges was a, when she was six years old, it was 1960, and she was the first African-American to attend an all-white school in the state of Louisiana, uh, specifically in the city of New Orleans. So a six-year-old little African-American girl was the first person, this was six years after Brown versus Board of Education, but Louisiana didn't like the federal government meddling in their schools, and so to that point, they had not been integrated, but Ruby Bridges was the first little girl to go to an all-white school. Now, not everybody was happy about this, right? Uh, The local authorities did not want to help her get to school, and so federal marshals had to be brought in who were armed And they had to escort her to school that first morning and many mornings thereafter. Because when she approached the school, there was a mob of people. In fact, Ruby, being only only six years old, as she was approaching the school with these federal marshals, looked at this crowd. And later in life, she said, having lived in New Orleans most of her life, she thought it was Mardi Gras. But she quickly found out that they weren't there to cheer They weren't there to throw beads at her. They were there to hurl insults at this six-year-old little girl. She said that there was a particular woman who every day would show up and would threaten to poison her. That there was another woman who would show up and she had had gotten a, a little black baby doll and put it in a coffin and would hold it up. So as Ruby walked by, she would see this image. Then she would make it inside the school, and once she got inside, there was nobody there. Because all the white parents had pulled their children out of the school, but there was one teacher who stayed, one teacher who stayed to teach Ruby. So Ruby would go into her classroom, and she would sit at her desk, and they would have school. And she continued to do this, Day after day, and one day the teacher said as Ruby was coming to school, she would always watch from the window as Ruby went through this mob and through this crowd to make sure that she was okay and would come into the school safely. And she said that one day as she was watching, she noticed that Ruby stopped in the middle of the crowd. And she began to speak. And so the teacher was obviously alarmed by this and was, you know, in her mind going, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. Because she could see that the crowd, as Ruby spoke, got more and more um, incensed and began to get louder and louder. And so when Ruby finally made it into the school and came into her class, the teacher said, what were you doing? What were you talking about? What did you, why did you stop and address the crowd? You never stop and address the crowd. And Ruby said, why was it? And she said, no, I watched you. You were. You were talking to the crowd. And she said, I wasn't talking to the crowd. 
She said, I could see your lips moving. What were you doing? She said, oh, well, every day before I get here, my mom always has told me to stop and pray and to pray for the mob. And she said when she got into the midst of the crowd, she realized that she had forgotten to pray for them. So she stopped and she began to pray out loud. And the teacher said, what in the world did you pray? And she said, what I always pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And isn't it interesting to ask the same question that I asked for my opening illustration last week, to think about where would we be in moments like that? This small, frail, vulnerable child seen as sort of an enemy of the people, of a certain sect of people, a certain culture of people. And I imagine that day, if you asked that, that crowd about their church attendance, I bet, I bet many of them would be very proud to tell you where they went to church, how often they went to Sunday school, how often they taught Sunday school. I bet many of them would tell you that even the reasons that they were there had to do with what they believed. Sort of like God, it's sort of like his standard operating procedure to to send someone who is small and who is weak and who is frail to shame those who are strong so that they might see what they can't normally see. And sometimes he sends a six-year-old black girl from Tylertown, Mississippi. And sometimes he sends a hick prophet from Tekoa, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. And at one point in history, he sent a baby who was born in a barn to parents who were refugees. This morning, I want us to think about the message of Amos. And so I chose a few passages that sort of encompass his entire message. And I want to think about why God sent Amos to his own people. Now, these were God's people who he's talking to. Why he sent Amos to these people. Why God was so upset. Why that should matter to us. And then how, we, how do we respond to that? I'll go ahead and tell you why God was so upset on the front end. And then we'll kind of work back through it. You could sort of sum up Amos's message to Israel like this. That God is saying to his people that your religious observance, your religious ritual, in the absence of love for those who are needy and who are marginalized and who are vulnerable, is disgusting to me. I'll say it again. What God is saying through Amos is essentially this, that you're, even though you're doing all, a lot of things that are right and they look good on the surface, your religious observance and your religious ritual in the absence of care and love and even the trampling of those who are actually in need among you is disgusting to me. Now remember, like I said, these are God's people. God loves them. God brought them out of slavery. He brought them out of misery. He brought them out of bondage. He knows that what is happening in their midst is wrong. And so out of love, he sends this prophet Amos to them to wake them up, 
to show them what is going on in their very midst because they can't see it. Because why? Why can't they see it? They can't see it because their eyes have been hidden and blinded through their own prosperity. This was a time of of great prosperity for Israel, and everyone was fat and happy. There were luxurious condos going up downtown. There were beautiful restaurants popping up on every single corner. Things were going well, and so Amos shows up in the midst of that, and they're like, oh, a prophet from God, it must be good news. And, and you can go back and read the beginning of Amos, that Amos' opening words are basically this, God roars from Zion. And I imagine everyone would have stopped and looked up and were like, what's he roaring about? We'd love to hear it. Let's, let's hear what's making God roar, because we love to hear bad things about the bad people out there. And so there was probably a lot of applause. Let's hear it, Amos. And so Amos begins to actually describe some of the sins of their neighbors. He describes the, the sins of Damascus and the transgressions of Gaza and Tyre and Edom. And he talks a little bit about those horrific Amorites, Ammonites and Moabites. And I imagine everyone's like, this is a good, I like this prophet, you know? He's, he's saying exactly the things that we want to hear. And then Amos begins to talk about Judah. Israel and Judah were divided at this time, but that's still getting a little bit too close to home. It's still nice to hear a little bit of the dirt of Judah, but they probably started to sense that things might actually turn to them, and then eventually they do turn to them. And he starts to talk about the sins of Israel. And I imagine everyone stopped cheering as Amos begins to list the things that were happening in Israel, showing that while technically they're doing a lot of the right stuff, That God does not care about the right stuff they are doing because the things that they are not doing are actually speaking more loudly about what they actually believe and who they actually trust. And so what does he say? Well, he shows kind of an overall picture of corruption. He says that they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. That they, They sell, in other words... Those who may owe debt, they sell them into slavery for as something as paltry and small as a pair of sandals. So what he's saying is that there is no compassion. There is no empathy. If you have a debt against me, throw you in slavery, throw you in prison. Instead of helping the afflicted, he shows that actually the way that they were practicing business, their economy was actually crushing those who were lowest and who were at the bottom. That they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, maybe not by directly robbing them or stealing from them, maybe they were doing it through legal loopholes. They were involved, it's a very uncomfortable line in the the words that Christy read, they were involved in cultic temple prostitution, And I think it's interesting that in this whole letter, I mean, we might fixate on that and go like, that's a pretty disturbing line that he read. But that's actually, their sexual immorality, as heinous as it was, is not the place where he spends most of his time. He turns immediately back to the fact that they keep the garments of the poor. 
that were given in pledge when by law those garments, even so sometimes the poor would give a garment in pledge saying that they would repay a debt. And normally those garments would be given back to them at night because it might be the only thing that they had to cover themselves up with. But he's saying that, no, they don't do that even. That they drink the wine of those who have been fined, which most commentators believe to mean that they're, they're getting rich off of the fines that are mainly given to those who have no means, those who are poor, and they're stripped of the little that they possess. And so, repeated throughout the book is this overarching kind of picture and this overarching offense that in the midst of their prosperity, they continue in their religious observance while they trample and take advantage and neglect those who are in need rather than using their prosperity and using their abundance to actually help them. And you hear God's response in chapter 5. He says these words, that are, I mean, they're really disturbing and surprising and shocking. He basically looks at them and says, I despise your songs. I despise your sacrifices. I despise the show that you put on when you come to temple, when you come to worship, when you come and throw a festival, when you throw a feast, that I don't want to see them anymore and I don't want to hear them anymore. They're, they're like a stench in my nostrils. Now, you can under, maybe we can understand this on, on some level. Um, if you are married and maybe your husband has not been, maybe he just doesn't listen to you. And maybe he hasn't been loving you for a time. Maybe the very things that are kind of the essence of what he should do, he hasn't done. And then, like, Valentine's Day rolls around, and he's just like clockwork. He takes you out to a fancy dinner, and he can't understand why you're not that excited. And you're like, I just want you to listen to me. And I want you to love me. And maybe unload the dishwasher, right? And in a much, maybe that's a, silly illustration of what's going on with God that he's saying you, you, you show up for service and you sing the right songs and you do some of the things that I've commanded but you've neglected the very heart of what I desire. You've, you've neglected the very purpose. What is it? Well, he says at the end of chapter 5 is that what he desires is for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness, like an, like an ever-flowing stream. That he's saying that I brought you out of slavery. I brought you out of bondage. I found you when you were trampled in the dust. And I've brought you out of that. And I've brought you into a land of prosperity. And I want you to be a conduit of that same love and that same mercy. And instead, what they were doing, which, which is a trap and so easy for all of us to do, myself included, is that when you taste a little bit of, of prosperity, the last thing that we want to do is let go of it. The last thing that we want to do is share it with those who are in need. And in case we think this is just an Old Testament thing, in the New Testament, Jesus plainly, we could go to many places where Jesus reinforces this, but Jesus plainly says these words. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. 
Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or maybe hear Paul when he says, if we have food and we have clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall in temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Or maybe the brother of Jesus, James, when he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Or when he says a little later, has has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, but you have dishonored the poor man? We could go on. it's, It's certainly not just a concern with this particular people in this particular day, in Amos's day. It's actually extends throughout all of Scripture from laws that you see set up in Deuteronomy to letters that are written at the at the very end of the New Testament in Revelation to prosperous churches that were doing the exact same thing. And of course, we can't forget at the height of Scripture, and I would say the height of history, the Son of Man took on flesh. And he became as one who was poor. He was one who said, I have no place to lay my head. And how easy it is for us. And this is why we need this reminder continually. How easy it is for us to forget that the reason that we might be rich in many ways. And just to live in this country. We taste of that all the time. That the reason why we have anything. While the reason that we could be here and rejoice and sing the praises that we've sung this morning to God and, and rejoice in his forgiveness that he offers to us is because he is one who became poor for our sake so that we might become rich. And so why do we care? I mean, maybe it's obvious at this point, but I want to I say this first. You might start to feel a little guilty, right? You might at this point start to go, oh no. It's one of those sermons. I don't want to hear that. And I'm starting just to feel bad about myself. And maybe I need to lean into that. And maybe I need to feel more guilt. And maybe if I feel guilty enough, then maybe I'll actually do something. You might walk out this morning and you might kind of go, I need to add this to the list of Christian things that I need to do in order to honor God. And if you do either of those things, you've missed the entire point. Because what I want you to remember is that Jesus became poor so that he might suffer and die even for your lack of love for those who are needy and for those who are vulnerable and for those who are poor. And until, until the guilt takes you there to where you lay it at the feet of Jesus and you realize, I am worse than I thought I was. I am more selfish than I thought I was. I am one who is more greedy than I thought I was. I am one who doesn't want to be burdened by anyone else, especially those who I just want to look at and say, why can't you get your act together like I have? I am that person. And until we get there and we go, Jesus saw me right there. He sees me right there. And what Jesus offers me is that I am going to move towards you in love. And I am going to offer you grace. And I'm going to offer you forgiveness. We will never change. Guilt is not only the wrong motivation. 
It is insufficient to complete the task because guilt never fuels love. It never does. We need to feel it oftentimes because sometimes we we have a lot of false guilt in our life. We feel guilty about all sorts of things. But we get to a point when we actually start to feel guilt that is stirred by the Holy Spirit, and then we don't know what to do with it other than trying to fix it ourselves. And what we need to do is we need to bring it to Jesus because Jesus actually wants to meet us there. And what we need to see is that when the gospel shows us that we are the poor, we are the vulnerable, that God in his infinite mercy and love has given us the very opposite of what we actually Deserve that he has lavished us with charity, and there's no one here this morning who is not a charity case. This is what we would call the basic logic of the good news of Jesus. Because Jesus loved me when I was poor and wretched and weak and helpless, and he gave me every spiritual blessing under heaven, and he promised to provide for me lavishly for all of eternity. He loves me. The more I see that I don't deserve his love, the more I'm actually moved towards love, even those who I might deem as ones who don't deserve it. In fact, Jesus says it is the measure of your understanding of what you've been given, the way that we love those who are poor, who are helpless, who are needy. In fact, in Matthew 25 that Mike read for us, he says that how we treat those in need really shows what we think of who. This is one of those times when the Sunday school answer, like Jesus, it is Jesus. It's what we think of Jesus. You could say it out loud if you want it. Our lack of love actually shows what we think of him. He's not saying this. Jesus is not saying, if you love the poor well, then I'll love you. If you foster, then I'll love you. If you adopt, then I'll love you. If you serve on a committee, if you do these things, then I'll love you. Jesus never says that. Jesus says, if you understand the depth to which I actually love you, then you will love well. You won't feel that there's any other option. It won't because of guilt. It won't be because you think you can manipulate me into loving you because you've already seen the depth of your own soul and the degree to which you don't deserve it. The more that you see how miraculous his grace is towards you, the more we actually begin to love. I think in order for us to get this, to remember it, we always have to see what we've been given. And I think the more, and this is what happened with Israel, the more that we get used to it, the more we kind of get accustomed um, to, you know, coming to church and singing the songs and even thinking like, oh, what a drudgery it is that, you know, we lost one hour of sleep. The more that we're not amazed that we get to sit here, that it is an unbelievable gift of God that he has actually shown us mercy, then we will yawn in the face of everything. I read an I read a interview a few years ago of the creator of the show Breaking Bad. Many of you are probably have watched Breaking Bad. 
and his name is Vince Gilligan, and, and he, said, he said this in this interview, and it always stuck with me. He said, my girlfriend of 20 years has this great line, and I always quote it. She says, I can stand that there, the thought that there's no heaven, but I don't know that I can stand the thought that there's no hell. And this is what she says, because where's Hitler then? Where's Pol Pot? There's got to be some kind of payback. It's hard for us to accept the fact that justice for us means hell. (laughs) That justice for me means the wrath of God. And unless we see it that way, we never truly love grace. Because on the cross is where his love and his justice meet. And I don't get what I deserve. And thank God you don't either. And do we actually understand what that means? That's what Amos is there to announce. You don't get it. You don't know how miraculous it is that you are now called the children of God. And the evidence is in your lack of love. In your lack of care. In your lack of sympathy. You see, the proud are stubborn. They're the most stubborn to give because they think all that they have comes from their own effort and their own hard work and their own intellect. And this is why God opposes the proud. And he says he does over and over in Scripture. This is why he calls them out because they fail to see that everything that they have, every ability they have, every thought that, they've been, that they have that brought them to a place where they feel comfortable or good, is actually a gift from him. The very air in their nostrils is from him. And so to love those in need is to confess that when God found me, I was poor, and I was helpless, and I was weak, and I was not moral, and I wasn't deserving. That's where I was when he found me. And so to go along with religious ritual while neglecting to love my neighbor whether they're homeless or elderly or disabled or fatherless or widowed, are trapped in a cycle of addiction to their wealth, is to admit that we understand very little of what has been graciously given to us. And so in this way, how do we respond then? How do we respond? I would say this first. And I want it to ring in your ears because I think it's the most important thing that we respond by this, by delving more deeply into grace, by celebrating his grace more intently, by marveling every day that I have been shown wonder of wonders. I have been shown mercy. I have been shown forgiveness. I have been shown the grace of God, and I am actually loved by him. If we stopped there, full stop, if that is the thing that overwhelmed us, that took us um, by, the, by the shirt and held us up every day and go, don't you see how loved you are? Don't you see that his love can never let you go, that for all eternity it belongs to you through no merit of your own? That you were found and you were brought into the family. If we have those type of hearts, those new type of hearts, and we need a continual diet of grace and his mercy for us to see for ourselves what we've actually been given so that we respond properly. 
maybe we respond in this way, that we kind of have particular sins that we also, that we kind of always go to God with. Maybe you do. And maybe they're the things that you kind of wish in your life they would just be gone because they make your life feel a little less, um, a little less perfect. I'll just say it that way. You know, you know what I mean when you go to God and you say, please take this sin away from me because you're bothered by the fact that you would actually do that thing. And to have that thing gone, you might feel a little more proud of yourself. But one of the things that we may not confess, that we may not repent of, that we may not move higher up on that list is our own neglect to love. Our own neglect to love those who are actually in need. Maybe we need to move a little higher on the list of the things that we think about and repent of. And maybe weekly that we have a list that we even work through that says, help me to love because my heart is cold. Forgive me of my coldness. How do we respond? Maybe we realize that to bear the burdens of others technically means that it will be a burden to us. That to bear someone's burdens is to mean that I become burdened myself so that we give of maybe our time or our lifestyle or our money in a way that actually hurts some. That we become famous for our love of those who are in need. The early church became famous for a lot of things and were accused of a lot of things. But one of the things that is documented over and over again is that they cared not only for their own who were marginalized and poor, but they also cared for the poor and the hurting and the babies that were cast aside who didn't belong to their churches. They were known for that. And so at Grace and Peace, we want to be known for for proclaiming the gospel. We want to be known for preaching grace, but we also do want to be known for doing justice. Because it is at the very heart of who our Father is. I don't know that I can spell out all the specifics of what this means for us and how we respond. And I think that we should rely on the fact that if the Spirit is alive in us, the Spirit guides us towards those things. But I do know that if this is true, that we have been loved in this way, that what it means for Christians is that we are ones who love liberally excessively, in a way that is surprising, that we open wide our hands to those who are in need. You see, in the end, I think it's, it's actually as complex and yet as simple as this. God wants his people to love those in need because he promises to continually love us in our need. And so to leave with the words of Jesus again this morning, he says... Fear not. Don't be afraid. You don't have anything left to be afraid of anymore. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you His entire kingdom. And if you know that, then you can hear the words of Jesus without fear and without guilt and without shame because He says, then go, test me. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no, no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me pray. Father, this morning we thank you that you sent your prophet Amos to visit us. 
And we confess that we live in a land of prosperity, that we live in a land um, where there is opportunity around every corner. And whether we have those opportunities or whether we spend most of our time just wishing we did, um, we confess to you this morning that it is hard not to be blinded. Because we oftentimes think think maybe we're the ones who are most in need. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to trust you with our lives. I pray that you would help us um, to delve more deeply into the wonder of what it means that we have been forgiven by you, that we have been shown mercy and we've been shown grace so that you might actually make us more loving people. Father, this morning we, we know that that might need to start just in our own homes today. But we pray that eventually it would rush out of our homes, that it would rush out of the church doors like water. And we know where water goes. Water goes to the crevices and the cracks and the corners and even to the lowest of places. And Father, we thank you that your grace and your mercy goes there as well. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.